A crucial moment in Game 5 of the World Series came down to a pair of former Mariners. I'm going to break that down and also go over some important offseason dates that are now locked in here on the Locked On Mariners podcast. Let's get into it. You are Locked On Mariners, your daily Seattle Mariners podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yo, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the Locked On Mariners podcast. It is Friday, November 4th, 2022. My name is Ty Gonzalez. This episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online has you covered all season long with more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet Online is where the game starts. No Colby today. He's come down with a bit of a cold, so I'm riding solo. Uh, but thank you so much for making Locked On Mariners your first listen. Subscribe, like, and turn on alerts if you're watching on YouTube, or subscribe and leave a five star review on your preferred podcast platform if you like what you hear. And if you want to hear from us even more, please consider signing up for our Patreon. The link as well as our social accounts is in the description below. A lot of fun off-season stuff going on over there. Uh, on today's show, we're going to have a more casual show. I'm going to talk a little bit about the World Series, including a fun matchup that happened in the bottom of the eighth inning of last night's game. Also going to go over some important off-season dates and how that pertains to the Mariners. And I'm also going to talk a little bit about uh, Carlos Santana, who's hitting free agency in a matter of days. Going to talk about if, he, uh, if his future lies in Seattle or elsewhere. But let's start with the World Series because the Astros are now a win away from winning a championship and most importantly, getting us to the off season and Jerry season. Uh, but the, uh, the Astros now have a three, two lead over the Phillies after winning three to two last night. Uh, the Phillies offense after getting a leadoff home run from Kyle Schwarber in the bottom of the first, just was not able to do anything. Justin Verlander gets his first career win in the world series. I'm uh, really settled in after the Phillies just were not able to take advantage of some opportunities that they had against them, particularly a bases loaded situation in which Reese Hoskins uh, struck out with the bases loaded. Uh, he, uh, yeah, we'll talk about Reese Hoskins in a second because I, I have some stuff to say about Hoskins. Uh, but really why I wanted to talk about the uh, the World Series and particularly last night's game is because there was a really interesting matchup uh, for Mariners fans uh, that happened at the bottom of the eighth. Uh, between Rafael Montero, former Mariners reliever, and former Mariners shortstop Gene Segura, both players who uh, were recently traded by Jerry Depoto over the last few years. And uh, you can basically thank Jerry Depoto for what proved to be one of the best moments of this World Series thus far. So, chills. Depoto did it again. Say it with me, folks. Depoto did it again. Chills. <laughs> uh, Segura ended up winning this battle um, he hits a little dink shot in right field off of uh, off of Montero that lands right in front of Kyle Tucker and scores Nick Castellanos from second Bryson Stott gets into third so it's first and third one out and the drama is starting to set in and it seems like the Astros are on tilt they have their back up against the wall they go to Ryan Presley uh, and the Phillies have the top of the order just right around the corner. They're at their number nine hitter, Brandon Marsh, the former Angel. And Marsh has one of the worst possible at-bats you could put together in that situation. He strikes out three pitches, donezo. Just non-competitive at-bat. And then Schwarber comes up, hits a rope down the line, which would have been extra bases guaranteed, 
likely would have given the uh, the Phillies the lead with Segura's speed over at first, but because Mancini, Trey Mancini, was holding Gene Segura over at first, he's playing right on the bag, and the ball just comes right to him. He makes kind of an awkward-looking play, but makes the play nonetheless, steps on the bag, and that ends the bottom half of the inning and ends that threat, the greatest threat that the Phillies would have uh, for the rest of the night. Uh, because the ninth inning, they were able to uh, put Harper on first uh, with a hit by pitch, uh, but that was about it. Um, and that ninth inning was just, it was rough for the Phillies. Reese Hoskins has an awful at bat. Uh, and again, we'll talk about him more in a second. I have something to add on him, but he had an awful at bat against Presley, helping him out, uh, just swinging at really anything that came close to the zone. Excuse me. And the. Uh, then JT Romuto comes up and hits what probably would have been a triple if it went off the wall. But Chaz McCormick makes one of the most incredible catches I've seen in a situation like that. Just an insane catch by McCormick. And that just sucked the life out of the Phillies and, and Citizens Bank Park. Like, you could just tell it was it was over at that point. Two outs now in the bottom of the ninth, even with Harper coming up. There just there wasn't any hope after after that play happened. Um, and this, you know, really it's surprising, you know, after the Phillies hit five home runs in game three, won seven, nothing, the offense has been the problem, right? And a lot, you know, obviously give credit where it's due to, to the Astros pitching staff. It's been incredible, uh, all postseason long, but especially over the last two games, but this Phillies offense has been the problem for Philadelphia. Uh, and you know, I mean, again, going back to that bases loaded situation against Verlander, he's really struggling there with his command, and Hoskins just kind of helps him out, offers at a uh, first pitch slider, and uh, I think he fell down 0-2 and worked it back to like a 2-2 count or something like that, and then uh, ended up striking out, but from that point forward, Verlander was able to really settle in, he was starting to find his slider, and he ends up you know, as I noted earlier, getting his uh, first career win in the World Series. And that was the Phillies' best opportunity to retake control of this series because Verlander, as crazy as it is to say about a guy that is most likely going to win the American League Cy Young, he's been the most hittable pitcher in really the, the entire Astros pitching staff this postseason. And uh, the Phillies just uh, didn't do themselves any favors here. And they got to figure it out quick because Framber Valdez is now getting the ball in game six. And I just don't know how you recover if you're the Phillies from the last two days and then having to face Valdez because Valdez has been incredible (laughs) this postseason, all postseason long. He's been magnificent. And I'm sure he's going to be magnificent again in, in game six, which puts a lot of pressure on Zach Wheeler uh, to have the game of his life while he's kind of dealing with a little stuff uh, with a little something as well. And uh, this offense is just really struggling. And so, you know, if you're the Phillies, I, I think, you know, if you're manager Rob Thompson, you have to do something here. And you guys know how I feel about lineup construction and wanting to get my best hitters at the top of my uh, at the top of the lineup to guarantee they have the most bats of anyone in the lineup and right now I don't think they're they're doing that frankly 
Bryce Harper, I know he hasn't been great the last couple of games, but he's having an, an, an incredible postseason. And he's hitting fourth in that lineup. That's a ways to go, especially when Nick Cassianos is really the only hitter that you truly fear behind Harper. And when you have Hoskins putting together the at-bats that he has the last couple of games out of the two spot, I just don't know how you can justify that. I know they want the 1-2-3 of Schwarber, Hoskins, and Rilmuto to set the table for Harper, but look at last night. Two outs, bottom of the ninth, no one on base, Harper's up, and at that point, the Astros can pitch to him however they want. He ends up getting hit by a pitch and doesn't get a chance to tie the game or really do any damage because the the Astros don't really fear anyone behind him. Even Nick Castellanos, I believe uh, Cespedes Family Barbecue tweeted last night that Castellanos hasn't hit a home run since August 27th. So while Castellanos has the track record, what he's done as of late, you're not really fearing him in that situation. And so not only do I think that they need to put Harper closer to the top of the lineup in order to guarantee bats, but to put some guys that actually strike fear in that pitching staff behind him so that they basically have to pitch to him and that if they get into situations like that, because I mean, imagine if Harper led that inning off instead and how that kind of changes the complexion of that inning as a whole. So, you know, now they're backs against the wall. They're going to play at least one elimination game here coming up. I think you got to try something because right now what what they have going on is just not working. Their offense is actually very Mariners-esque right now. It's we either hit home runs or bust. We can't move the line at all. The Phillies are not moving the line whatsoever they're not able to manufacture runs that way and so i think that i mean like i i don't think that that moving harper up the lineup necessarily changes that but i think it gives you a better opportunity to do some damage in key situations than your lineup currently is right now so uh with that said it's starting to look a lot like the astros are going to win the world series uh, because again, I, I just I don't think that the Phillies can recover from the way the last couple of nights have gone, getting no hit, losing in the fashion that they did last night, and with the way that the offense is playing, and with the flaws of this defense and the pitching staff, I just I don't see it, especially against Valdez. Um, so yeah. Uh, and, and it sucks if you're a Seattle sports fan overall, <laughs> if you're a Seahawks fan and a, and a Mariners fan, um, you're probably going to end up seeing the Rams win a Super Bowl and the Astros win a World Series in the same year. So despite how fun this year has been overall for Seattle sports fans with what the Storm did, what the Sounders have done, um, even though they didn't make the playoffs this year, but what they were able to do in the uh, I don't watch soccer, but they they won like a Champions League thing or something like that. They were like the first U.S. team to do something like that. Um, the Mariners being in the playoffs for the first time in 21 years, what the Seahawks and Geno Smith have done, uh, what the Kraken are doing right now. It's been a really fun year, but then also the two most, you know, two of the most hated rivals in Seattle sports right now 
are the champions of their respective leagues, or at least the Astros are looking like they're about to be. So that is not particularly fun. But you know what is fun? The offseason, particularly Jerry's season. And it is upon us. We are getting very close. And now that we know that this series is either ending in six or seven games, we have some really important offseason dates now locked into place. But before we get into those, a uh, quick reminder, this episode of Locked On Mariners is brought to you by BetOnline. BetOnline.net is your number one source for betting on football and the start of the new basketball season. Find all the latest player developments, team matchups, news, podcasts, and in-depth analysis on every game. And as always, BetOnline remains your continued source for all your sports wagering information with live betting and up-to-the-minute scores for every sport out there. It is the fastest and easiest way to check in on all your favorite games and events, including MLB, MMA, boxing, and golf. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more bet online is where the game starts you're listening to the locked on mariners podcast thank you again for making this your first listen so let's get into these off-season dates this comes from chris Tio of uh, masslive.com red sox beat reporter who has his ear to the ground with really all things uh major league baseball he's a he's a good follow to uh to have at least during the off-season um he has some uh, some key dates here uh, that are finalized now for the uh, for the off season. So starting on Tuesday, November eighth, uh, the GM meetings will be happening from the eighth through the tenth in Las Vegas, and that's basically when uh, the ball gets rolling for negotiations uh, particularly between teams for trades there's also obviously going to be some agents there as well and and you start to get the ball rolling on uh, free agent negotiations Uh, but yeah that's really where the first pieces kind of get put in place for uh, trades and there will be a couple of trades that happen and maybe the Mariners will get involved in that Uh, but that's mostly going to be uh we're not going to see a lot of stuff come out from there but there's going to be a lot of work that's done behind closed doors uh during those meetings um and that's kind of where like some of the trades that we'll see maybe a month from now or so uh get started where uh where the conversations start to happen on those uh then at the same time so depending on if there's a game seven uh either the eighth or the ninth will be the um the opt-out uh deadline for guys like Xander Bogarts and Carlos Correa, guys that the Mariners might have some interest in. Uh, Then uh, November 10th or the 11th, depending on if there's game seven again, uh, team options and qualifying offers will be due. So this is a uh, really um, key date for the Mariners in particular when it comes to Mitch Hanniger and what they want to do with Hanniger. Now, I'm of the belief that they will not give Hanniger the 20 million 20 ish million dollar qualifying offer because i don't think that they want to run the risk of him actually accepting that because you know even though that it's just a one-year commitment 20 million dollars for a player that has the injury history that hanniger has and hasn't you know produced in the way that he would hope is a lot of money and so i i think there's a real legitimate chance that he would actually accept that and i don't know if the mariners want to run that risk of him accepting it for the possibility of getting what would likely be a third round draft pick. I don't think that that's worth it because, you know, whether you want Hanniger back or not, $20 million is a lot of money for 
the uh, that's going to be a, a huge chunk of your 2023 payroll. That might be very well a third, if not more, of your available 2023 payroll. So that has to be taken into account here. And again, with the way that Hanniger's uh, injury history is gone and the way that he played uh, towards the end of the season, he's not a $20 million player. Like, let's just be real about it. Like, if you... If you're going to get Mitch Hanniger back, you would be better served doing it on a deal that pays him somewhere in the 10 to $15 million AAV range, not the $20 million range. So, And going off of what Justin Hollander said in the Mariners' end-of-season press conference, I think uh, they're, they're not going to extend that qualifying offer to, to Mitch, which you know now gives Mitch the freedom to... Uh, you know, go look for an opportunity elsewhere without a draft pick being attached to him where, you know, a team will have to give up a, uh, a, a draft pick. Uh, and uh, for someone, again, with the injury history and all that, that could lead to him waiting for a long time to sign if he has that qualifying offer attached to him. So if he doesn't, I think he actually gets some interest pretty early on. And that might uh, solidify... Um, him not returning either because I think he will get a, a, quite a bit of interest. And I think the Mariners really, if they are going to bring Hanniger back, it's going to be a little ways down the road when they have a clearer picture of how the rest of the roster is coming together, not right away. And I think Hanniger just ends up signing uh, before they get to that point. Uh, so November 15th. Uh, so I said yesterday that, I think the Mariners could have uh, waited until December to make their decision on Rule 5 eligible players and who they add to their 40-man roster to protect from the Rule 5 draft, uh, but that's not the case. Uh, the uh, deadline for Rule 5 protection is November 15th, so guys like Cade Marlowe, Travis Kuhn, Joseph Hernandez, etc., guys that are eligible for the Rule 5 draft and may very well get picked by another team, now keep in mind, whichever team does pick them has to keep them on their 26 man roster for the entire year or they get offered back to their original team. Uh, but if they want to uh, protect any of those guys, they have to do it by the 15th. And of course they're going to have five roster spots uh, open up here in the coming days with the impending free agencies of Kirk Casale, Carlos Santana, Adam Frazier, Mitch Hanniger, and Matthew Boyd. Uh, they are going to add Casey Sadler and Tom Murphy back to the 40-man roster coming off of the 60-day IL, uh, but that still gives them four spots, uh, four available spots on uh, on their 40-man roster to add some of those guys. So I at least think that Hernandez, Isaiah Campbell, and Cade Marlowe, uh, and potentially more, uh, could get added there uh, by the 15th, but the uh, Mariners have to make that decision in the uh, next uh, 10 or so days. So um, uh, on the uh, 18th is the uh, non-tender deadline. So if you have arbitration eligible players who you don't want to go into arbitration with, uh, you don't have any interest in bringing back, um, you have to make that decision if you want to non-tender uh, them uh, by the 18th or if you want to tender a contract to them um, and then the arbitration process begins and all that stuff. Uh, I don't really think that there's anyone truly at risk of getting non-tendered by the Mariners. Maybe Ryan Barucki, maybe Diego Castillo, but Barucki I believe is projected by MLB trade rumors to only make $1.1 million in arbitration. 
excuse me, and I think the I think Castillo is projected for like three point three million dollars or something like that. So it's not neither of those are are huge numbers. Neither of those would prevent uh, would necessarily prevent the Mariners from uh, from keeping them. Uh, and then uh, qualifying offers, uh, qualifying offer decisions are due. So whether uh, a player uh, wants to uh, accept the qualifying offer or not, that decision has to be made on either the 20th or the 21st. Again, that's dependent on if the um, if there's a game seven in the World Series. So if there's a game six, it'll be the 20th. If there's a game seven, it'll be on the 21st. Um, then finally, the the winter meetings we we knew this already. The winter meetings start on uh, December fifth and run through December seventh in San Diego, and that should be pretty uh, busy. We finally actually have a winter meetings after uh, last year's lockout, so that'll be a lot of fun, uh, and that'll be a lot of fun for us to uh, to cover. So overall, um, now we kind of know what's uh, what's going on here, and so that should also give you guys an idea of uh, kind of how we'll be scheduling uh, or mapping out uh, our uh, slate of Lockdown Mariners episodes here over the course of the off season. So there's going to be plenty to talk about, and really anything can happen at any given time. Uh, so lastly, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Carlos Santana, uh, who's going to be a free agent. Uh, very soon here in the in the coming days uh, he's 36 years old he's basically going to play uh, the 2023 season at age 37 the entirety of it uh, he turns 37 on April 8th so about a week and a half after the uh, or about a week after the uh, after opening day uh, and this year you know solid year for him I mean if you put his numbers in a vacuum it's not great especially for a first base slash DH type. 202, 316, 376, 102 WRC plus. Did have 19 home runs, 60 RBI, uh, 17.4% walk rate, one of or 17.4% strikeout rate uh, rather, and a 14% walk rate. Uh, those are both really, really good numbers. Of course, uh, the walk rate especially is elite. Um, and he had, you know, of course, had some really big moments. Uh, in the season and the postseason since being acquired from the Royals at the end of June, and then you you know you look at his baseball savant numbers and I mean they're they're incredible. There are tons of red on his baseball savant page, eighty uh, first percentile on average exit velocity, seventy uh, fifth percentile on max exit velocity, seventy sixth percentile in hard hit rate, eighty eighth percentile in ex woba, fifty ninth percentile in ex batting average, seventy uh, fourth percentile in expected slugging. Uh, 60th percentile in barrel rate, uh, 74th percentile in K rate, 97th percentile in, in walk rate, 71st percentile in whiff percentage, 87th percentile in chase rate. And then he was a pretty good defender as well. 83rd percentile and outs above average, of course, didn't get a ton of opportunities at first base, uh, especially when Ty France was healthy. But uh, he was able to contribute in a multitude of ways to this team. And of course, the big thing on him as well is the leadership aspect, right? Julio Rodriguez looks up to him immensely. Uh, he's just, you know, he's one of the very few veterans that were in that um, clubhouse overall. And the team kind of, you know, rallied around him, right? Uh, I think he was also the reason for the for the circle dance, or uh, at least some players, I think, have said that he's, he that was at least his idea or he was kind of champion that or, or whatever. So he was a big part of building the Mariners culture into what it was by the end of the season. 
And I think for that reason alone, there is going to be a consideration there to bring him back. Uh, But that said, I think if they do bring him back, that's going to be a decision that ends up getting made in January, February, sometime when the picture of this roster is a lot more clear and they're basically just um, putting the finishing touches on the roster before they head to Arizona for spring training. Um, because right now, again, you know, he's getting older. The last two years before this year were dreadful. 82 WRC plus in 2021, 99 WRC plus in 2020. And then this year, I mean, like the numbers again, like a 376 slugging percentage for a guy that only plays first base in DH is bad. Like, let's just say it, it's bad. Uh, and so you know, how much of that do you think is actually going to carry over to next year? And how much do you think that, you know, his baseball savant numbers suggest that he's going to be a better hitter next year? And of course, you know, how much do you think the shift is going to help him? Like how much is he, you know, is he going to actually hit for more singles and therefore get on base more? And so his on base percentage and his batting average is going to go up. But how much is that going to be by? The, those are things that you have to consider here, and especially because, like the the baseball savant numbers, as as extreme as they are, they might be a little bit of a fluke. Because you look at twenty twenty one, sixty fourth percentile in average exit velocity, seventy ninth percentile in max exit velocity, fifty fifth percentile in hard hit rate, fifty eighth percentile in ex woba, thirty fourth percentile in expecting batting average. Uh, you get the point. It's basically there. There, it's nowhere close. To what he did in twenty twenty in twenty twenty two twenty twenty was a little bit closer to what he did this year, uh, and then like twenty nineteen when he was you know when he hit for like a one thirty six wrc plus, it was like that. But I I just there's a lot of like ifs and maybes here that I just I feel uncomfortable doing that. And you know look you don't well well we've talked about the possibility of adding another first baseman or a guy that can play first base to this roster. It's not necessarily, it's not necessary because you do have a starting first baseman in Thai France and you know, you have other guys that can play some first base still more played a lot of first base before he signed with the Mariners. Um, and you know, it's overall like, relative to the rest of the positions you know on a baseball field first base is relatively the easiest uh position to pick up now don't misconstrue that as me saying that first base is easy it's not but it's the easiest for a player that hasn't necessarily played it before to pick up and so for me why not just give jesse winker a first base glove and see what happens there you know abraham toro maybe could play over there if he ends up making the roster Louis Serenz, you know, the, the, the point is like there are other ways to get reps over at first base without having to commit to someone that that exclusively plays there uh, to in order to get, you know, Ty France some time off, what have you, or if he gets injured again, whatever. Uh, but for me, like I, I especially because you have France in place, signing Santana means that Santana's primarily going to be your dh again and i don't think the mariners want that i definitely don't want that because i want to be able to and i and i think the mariners want this too excuse me to rotate 
players in and out of the DH spot. We talked yesterday about how Eugenio Suarez played 150 games despite having a significant finger injury. And a lot of those games were played at third base. And so it would be nice to get him some more reps at DH. It would be nice that, you know, if you do reunite with Mitch Hanniger to get him uh, some DH reps and get him some uh, some days off in the outfield, especially because, you know, outside of his arm, he's not a particularly good defender. Um, you know, Jesse Winker, if you keep him, like he should primarily hit out of the DH, I would think. Uh, or play first base, you know, and then I guess you can live with him playing some left field if he's willing to put the work in. Uh, but, you know, I think that 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 DH spot is going to be very valuable to you uh, next year and too valuable for you to use it on a guy that is slugging well below 400. You just can't have that, right? Like even with the 19 home runs, a sub 400 slugging percentage is not good for a guy that does not provide you any sort of versatility defensively speaking and any value on the base pass uh and and that's a very limited bench player to have as well if he's someone that maybe doesn't necessarily get to primarily dh but comes off the bench like he's a decent pitch hitting option and all that don't get me wrong but that's a very limited asset that you have if you start the season off with him, fine. And I get it, again, from the, the clubhouse perspective and how much he, you know, how how well-respected he is. Uh, but from a pure roster construction and uh, uh, production standpoint, it's not an obvious fit. It's not an obvious fit. And I think this is something that Carlos Santana is like your plan Z, really. He's not plan A, he's not plan B, he's not plan C, he's plan Z. He's all the way down the list. He's your last resort, basically, if you're not able to fill out the bench and the rest of your lineup the way that you want to. Because at least you can trust him, and I don't think he's someone that's going to sign early on with anyone. I think he's someone that ends up signing relatively close to spring training. So... There's a lot to consider there with Santana because, you know, the argument can be made that, hey, like maybe he's even better than he was this year when you look at his savant numbers and, you know, with the shift ban, like maybe he gets his batting average up and he gets his on base up, but still the slugging percentage or lack thereof is really concerning for me for a guy that is going to be 37 years old and only plays first base and DHs. Uh, lastly, before we uh, before I hop off of here, uh, we're going to be starting up Mailbag Monday uh, this upcoming Monday. So uh, we're going to limit it to people in the YouTube comments. So if you're listening right now, head on over to our YouTube channel, go to our uh, our uh, to this to this episode, and leave a comment down below this episode, and we'll answer as many questions as we can. We're likely not going to get to all of them, but ask us whatever you want. Ask us Mariner stuff. Ask us non-Mariner stuff. Doesn't matter. Sometimes those are fun as well. Uh, and then we will, uh, we again, we'll answer as many as we possibly can on uh, on the next episode. But that's going to do it for the show. Thank you so much for joining me here on the Locked On Mariners podcast. Be sure to give the show a follow on Twitter at LO underscore Mariners. And you can follow me at Dane Gonzalez. It's E-A-N-E-G-N-Z-L-Z. And you can also find all that stuff in the description of this episode. And thank you again for making Locked On Mariners your first listen. For your next listen, check out the Locked On Sports Today podcast featuring the biggest stories of the day, plus instant reactions, big game recaps, and the take of the day. It's available on the Odyssey app, YouTube, and we're wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, have yourself a beautiful baseball day and we'll see you on Monday. Peace.